Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. We have a great episode for you today. Before we get into that, as always, we have a tiny bit of housekeeping to do. One is days are numbered for anyone who is still interested in the Women's Longevity and Resilience Retreat that I'm hosting with Dasha Maximov in Cabarete from November 1st to November 6th. If you even think you might be interested in spending five days with yours truly talking about all things biohacking for women and doing yoga and walking on the beach and doing all the amazing things that we can do in the tropics, then you're going to want to go to natnidham.com, click on that retreat tab at the top of the page, book a Zoom with myself and with Dasha so that we can have a chat and see if this is the right fit for you. Secondly, if you get value from this episode, make sure to share it, leave us a review. And that's all I'm going to say about that because I want to jump into this episode. I'm really excited about it. Okay, let's first start by thanking one of our sponsors, RestoraCell. Even though the skincare industry now produces hundreds of biologically active peptides every year, each with an impressive list of biological effects, none of them have been studied in such depth with such an impressive yield of scientific discoveries as GHKCU, the copper peptide. It has been shown to improve wound healing, stimulate the production of collagen, elastin, and glycosaminoglycans, stimulate hair growth, DNA repair and damaged fibroblasts, better antioxidant defense and blood vessel growth, and possesses anti-inflammatory effects. And that's honestly just the tip of the iceberg. This is why I love Vitali Skincare. It's a regenerative skincare line centered on GHKCU, copper peptides with a purity of over 99% formulated with other active natural and organic ingredients. These formulas provide essential elements that help skin be vibrant and healthy regardless of age. And the products are formulated without parabens, phthalates, and they're free of fragrance and artificial color. Vitali has a targeted approach to skincare with a streamlined number of products, each designed to deliver maximum results. I love this stuff. Now, if you want to try some for yourself, just go head over to www.restoracell.com and use code NAT25 for 25% off. Okay, guys, now let's talk about this episode. I've been wanting to host a conversation on this topic, on this podcast for the longest time, and I finally found the perfect person to do it with. So the conversation is about consumption of animal protein and meat. And which is meat, obviously, but meat, fish, chicken, pork, all the things. And the finer point of how bad is it really for the environment or are we looking at it wrong or how healthy is it or how not healthy it is. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that my personal opinion is that we do better from a health perspective as omnivores. But And I've looked at a lot of studies and a lot of science and everything that I look at convinces me of this. But my guest today is actively engaged in actually producing a dissertation on this topic. She's creating a docu-series about this topic, and she is the co-founder of a company called Paleo Valley. So you could sit there and say, listen, she has a vested interest in proving that meat is good for people. And I wouldn't disagree with you. Having said that, Autumn is 100% convinced, just like I am, that consuming meat 
can and is quite healthy for humans. However, it's got to be the right stuff from the right place, and you have to be preparing it properly. So we do talk about that a little bit at the end, but the lion's share of this conversation is much bigger than what about a brand. This is about animal husbandry. This is about regenerative farming. We're talking about some of the studies and some of the history around why meat is getting demonized the way that it is right now. So Autumn holds a master's of science in holistic nutrition. She's a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. She's a certified eating psychology coach by the Institute of the Psychology of Eating Soil Advocacy and a doctoral candidate. So that dissertation she's writing is for her PhD. Now, in 2013, she and her husband, Chaz, launched Paleo Valley, a company dedicated to helping people get the essential nutrients they need without added sugars, grains, and other harmful ingredients. But they didn't stop there. After learning about the healing powers of grass-fed, pasture-raised meat, both for our bodies and the planet, Autumn and Chaz started their next venture. In 2018, they launched Wild Pastures, a regenerative meat delivery service that sends 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat directly to your doorstep. So if you actually wanted to do any shopping after this episode because you're convinced about this stuff, you could go to www.paleovalley.com forward slash Natalie. And that's Natalie with an H, N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E. But to learn anything else about Autumn and her work. The docu-series will be coming out in 2024. It's called Rethink Meat. And to go to the website for Paleo Valley, you just got to go to paleovalley.com. They're pretty active also on Instagram, just at Paleo Valley. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I think it's a really important conversation that we need to have. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything, but this is really all about education. So let's just dive in. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today we have with us the co-founder of a company called Paleo Valley, Autumn Smith. Welcome to the show, Autumn. Thank you so much. It's quite an honor to be here. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. This is a conversation that I've been wanting to have with someone for the longest time, just because, you know, there's there's such a crazy amount of chatter going on about animal protein, whether it's good for humans or bad for whether it's good for health or bad for health, whether it's good for the planet, bad for the planet, whether, you know, is it ethical to be eating animals or not ethical to be eating animals? And I'm I'm a person who lives in the world of nuance, right? I've always believed, in, you know, people know when they ask me a question, half the time they're going to get the answer, it depends, because rarely do we have a really black and white issue, you know, as opposed, you know, kind of like, you know, do I take someone head off for cutting me off in traffic? That's pretty clear. No, but <laughs> beyond that, most of the time it depends, right? I was just going to say, yes, I'm, it's so refreshing because you do lose that in the mainstream narrative. There isn't, it's black, it's white, and it's inaccurate whenever that's the case. What I'm really looking forward to with this conversation is that you're not just the co-founder of Paleo Valley, which in and of itself is a pretty cool thing, but you're in the academic stream. You're creating content like um, this, like a, a docu-series to really leaning into educating and doing research to find answers to some of the questions that 
frankly, we all have, and we don't have clear answers to. So I'm super excited about this conversation. So I don't, I don't actually even know where to start, but why don't we start with, you know, speaking to regenerative agriculture versus, you know, true, like regenerative agriculture versus what our society has come to take as this is the way it has to be. These kind of giant feedlots, conventional farms, which, you know, we we're now starting to figure out maybe are not such a great idea. Yes, that's a wonderful place to start. And the truth is when you walk into a grocery store and you buy meat, you know, over 95% of the chickens and the turkeys and the pork, they're coming from factory farms. And, you know, 75% of the beef is coming from factory farms, right? And we all know what this looks like. It's these huge um, operations that have, you know, hundreds or thousands of animals packed together in close quarters. They're often given a feed ration. You know, they're not out on pasture roaming like animals would. You know, they're receiving additives. They're essentially polluting the environment. And even though they might be cheaper at checkout, right? There's all of these externalities, which I know we'll get into these external costs that are being given to the public, right? Yeah. Uh, that we're not really accounting for. But this wasn't always the way that we raised animals, right? This is a very recent shift. And there's a lot of different, uh, you know, upgrades or kind of like um, improvements in, you know, refrigeration and antibiotics. All of a sudden we could feed animals antibiotics and they gained weight more quickly. They could mm -hmm. also live in sanitary conditions. We had vitamin D produced so that we could, we didn't need animals to be outside. And we had this surplus of grain, right? And so, and a booming population. So people thought, okay, we need to really scale up our production as efficiently as possible. And that became our number one priority. And as we were talking about 1950s, that's kind of when the shift started going. And, you know, at the inception of America, about 50% of people were involved in agriculture. And today it is way lower than that, something like 5%. A lot of our farmers are struggling. You know, they have high rates of suicide. It's really hard to make a living because they're trapped in this system. And so I never like to demonize farmers and ranchers. I grew up in Montana. These are my people, right? There is just a system today that prioritizes efficiency over all else and has this like laser or like laser tunnel vision. Um, and we're just missing the bigger picture. And so regenerative agriculture is actually an old type of agriculture, right? Where we worked in accordance with nature. We saw nature as a partner rather than something that kind of to be dominated. Mm -hmm. It's based on a set of principles, right? We're looking at soil, we're building soil biodiversity and the microbes in the soil, which we now realize just like our gut microbiome are absolutely essential to a healthy ecosystem. And we're maximizing the roots in the soil structure again to feed those microbes. We're integrating animals. So animals, we've painted this picture of animals being a destructive force for the environment and they can be. And as we've talked about in factory farms, they are today. A lot of times they're managed in a way that is not improving ecological outcomes, but regenerative agriculture uses them in a highly managed way. And we can talk about the genesis of this idea and who came up with it because it's a fascinating story. But yeah, animals are just moved around and then their manure becomes fertilizer when there's not mm -hmm. thousands of animals, right? And it's kind of this separation of animal agriculture and crop-based agriculture that has led to our need for fertilizers, right? Artificial fertilizers and then pesticides to come in. When we have diversified, you know, agricultural systems, we don't need a lot of the inputs that we are using today so heavily. And so regenerative agriculture at its core is different than conventional agriculture because we're not using inputs. We're not using pesticides and fertilizers. And some are granted, 
but it's more of a precision based agriculture. It's not just mm-hmm. we're going to put on however much we're we're measuring. We're paying very close attention to ecological outcomes. And so that's the difference. Regenerative agriculture takes a plot of land from where it is today and makes it better in partnership with the land using as many of the holistic principles that we just talked about to kind of restart the cycles of nature. So whereas we've been using this like extractive type of agriculture for about 10,000 years, taking out more than we're putting back in, essentially depleting our soil bank account. Regenerative agriculture is looking to restore that bank account and create the savings and sequester carbon and restore fertility underground, increase biodiversity, improve water holding capacity, make more nutrient dense food. There's evidence that, you know, healthier soil and animals in the soil are also going to lead to a more healthful uh, meat or um, plants. And we, we can talk about that because like you said, very, very nuanced there. But yeah, basically conventional agriculture is the dominant source of our meat today, of a lot of our food today, but it isn't the way that we were doing things before. And I think regenerative agriculture is just kind of a return to that wisdom of nature and just working with rather than against nature. Yeah, that's a great definition. Thank you. And I think that you said a couple of things there that I think we should go back to. And one of them is the carbon sequestration, um, which I remember learning about, I want to say maybe Diane Rogers. Is that who, is that her name? Oh yeah. Sacred Mm -hmm. cow. And I remember hearing an interview with her where she explained that, you know, the, 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 the cattle walking on the soil, the pooping in the soil, creating that very rich micro microbiome, if you will, of the soil, um, in many ways created this net zero carbon equation because, and, and I'm probably butchering the, <laughs> butchering the explanation, but ultimately that truly grass-fed animals that got to graze and and eat what they were supposed to be eating in the first place, by the way, Right. I mean, you don't you don't find cows running around looking for grain plants so they could eat grains like they're they're going for the grass. Um, But she talked she talked quite extensively about how it's an it's a net zero equation if you're doing it properly. So maybe you want to. Yes. So that's that's, a little bit. (laughs) That's the thing. And I'm going to start it. Um, One of the men who had this big light bulb moment is Alan Savory. Do you know Alan Savory? Have you heard of him? No. Anyone who's listening to this needs to watch his TED talk. It's millions of views. Um, So he was a rangeland ecologist and he grew up in Africa and he hated livestock, right? He believed that livestock were creating desertification. And in order to restore his uh, ecosystem there, he and other colleagues decided the best course of action would be to cull about 40,000 elephants. So they killed 40,000 elephants. Yeah, he No, not. And he calls it the biggest blunder of his professional career, because what he found was when he killed the animals, they didn't, the land didn't improve. It actually got worse. And so he, it was like a trajectory shift for him. And so he went to study this and he came across the work of a guy named Andrew Vassan. And he was talking about, it's not the amount of animals on the land. It's the timing right? Because animals can be a great disturbance, right? And when you look at the way they evolved with these um, 
ecosystems and these prairies, they created the soil fertility that we are, you know, benefiting from today because they come in and they use their manure and their urine and they're essentially fertilizing the soil and then they create disturbance right their little hooves are creating little places where the seeds can kind of germinate and then when they stimulate grass growth those roots slough off and the carbon or the grass acts like a straw taking carbon out of the atmosphere so it's when they're there for the right amount of time they are very very healing and especially this is especially true of desertified ecosystems which actually he has found need more animals right so The parallel to that is how we raise animals today. We kind of take them into a plot of land and we let them sit there and then they find the uh, species that they like. They overgraze it and potentially can harm the soil. That's why not all grass fed is regenerative. Right. And all animals are essentially grass fed from the beginning of their lives. A lot of them then later go to feedlots. But you can have an animal that is grass fed that is still overgrazing because they're not managed holistically. So Alan Savory went on to create this system called holistic management where you rotate the animals like they would have done in predatory prey cycles. So animals would have been chased out of that area or they would have dung, you know, and they don't want to hang out and eat where they've, you know, had manure and everything like that. So recent research has shown that it's a very stark contrast when you look at conventionally raised beef and we're just going to talk about carbon sequestration because you brought it up so there was a really cool analysis done at white oak pastures this is a regenerative farm in bluffton georgia will harris uh, very very famous rancher in the space yeah and so what they found is when you do a life cycle analysis you take all the considerations from birth to death of the animal being raised Uh, you get a net positive. You sequester 3.5 pounds of carbon per pound of meat produced. Okay, so you compare that to other data where conventional beef, it's around 33 pounds per pound. So 33 pounds of carbon are emitted per pound produced. So that is a huge delta, right? That is That couldn't be more different. But then when you compare it to something like pork, nine pounds of carbon emitted, chicken is six, Beyond Burger somewhere around four, soy is around two. So the point is, you know, beef can be the worst. It can emit 33 pounds when it's raised conventionally, or it can be the best. It can actually be sequestering carbon. It can be better than plant-based meats. It can be better than certain uh, vegetables, crops, soy, things like that. So it truly depends on the management, but you cannot say that animals um, are always destructive of the environment because that's just simply inaccurate. Yeah, no, that's beautifully explained. So the big one of the, the, I mean, there are many, many arguments that are being made against beef, and we're going to unpack a few of them. One of them being that it's unhealthy, but we're going to get to that later because that's that's your dissertation. We're gonna we're gonna poke around in there a little bit, but but the other one that I think is is interesting to talk about a little bit is, but if we were to to adopt a regenerative farming on a, on a large scale, there wouldn't be enough land to to support enough beef to support people, and so. What do we say to that? And I, and you know, I like it's like I feel right now, like in the city that I live in, there's a war on cars, right? People are like all up in arms about cars, but I also feel there's a war on beef. Like yeah. there's a, and and because beef is getting more and more and more expensive, and I feel like there's just like there's this political push to push it to the point where people can't afford it anymore. So, but anyway, let's get back to the the first question, which is, you know, regenerative farming techniques, can it be scaled to a point where it can actually feed people? This is such a great question. It's something I've talked to so many ranchers about, right? And so many people. Now, the one that really resonates with me, the answer is 
we cannot look at our conventional system and believe that this is sustainable with the rates of environmental pollution, right? Dead zones, you know, nitrates in our drinking water, you know, manure, air pollution. I mean, this, to think we're going to continue with our conventional system and be okay is is maybe a little bit naive. But then also regenerative farmers will say, yeah, the problem with kind of the way they've been comparing it so far is they say, okay, we'll we'll have five animals raised regeneratively and five animals raised conventionally. And then we're just going to look at the amount of food produced. But when you diversify farms, right? And you have your cows and then you have your sheep, you have your goats, you have your pigs, you have your chickens, right? You have your beasts, right? You have cover crops and you're rotating crops and you're not reliant on this kind of singular siloed uh, system that we have today where you're growing one thing or you're having a certain amount of animals. Ranchers have told me they can increase the carrying capacity of the land significantly. Okay, so that's one. You can grow a lot more food and you can have a lot more animals and a wider diversity of animals in these integrated systems. So some ranchers think that alone could make up for the difference and that could make it possible. And others say, yeah, we would just have to use land more creatively, right? Mm-hmm. So public lands, people could come in and graze public lands, right? Or, you know, BLM land, or, you know, we could just be using the land that we have uh, in a better, more uh, effective way, and that that can make the difference. The truth is nobody really knows. But what I feel is that we don't really have a choice. The rate that we're losing topsoil, that's a serious issue today. Some people estimate 10 times faster than it's being built, about 30 million acres of farmable land down the drain uh, every single year. And if we lose that thin layer of soil, like we lose the base of our economy. We lose nutrient dense food. Like 95% of our calories come from that. We lose clothes. We lose energy. Like we're just not going to continue on life as we know it. And so I do think it's possible. I, I actually think it's our only probable way forward. Yeah. We all stay healthy yeah. and living a life close to what we live right now. Great, great point. And the other thing is, you know, you've got all this land that's being used to grow the grain, to feed the animals, yeah, you know, yeah. and you, to your point, you've siloed the two systems away from each other. Um, that land instead should, could be used to graze the animals. And in the, in the conventional, in the, in the big project kind of feedlots, I'm sure that urine and, and manure, and you kind of mentioned it a minute ago, which is regenerative and nutritive to the soil under the right conditions now all of a sudden you've got piles of this stuff and it becomes yeah. a negative, right? Like it, it doesn't, it, it's almost like it has nowhere to go and no purpose. And now you oh. just have a waste problem. Absolutely. And Dr. Fred Prevenz has done really good research on this. He studied animal science at Utah State for a number of years and, and cows don't, they don't need grain, right? Growing grain to feed cows. We, we just don't even need to do it because they can eat grass their entire lives. In fact, they, 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 just like we do, they can eat to prevent illness. They can eat to make themselves feel better, but, but they would just do that with grass, right? So we can take that whole grain side out of the equation. And yes, like you're saying, factory farms create massive amounts of pollution. They say more manure than some U.S. cities come out. And of course, they're emitting ammonia into the air. They're creating Mm -hmm. air pollution. It's getting and seeping into our waterways. And all of the additives we're using, ractopamine, antibiotics, pesticides, I mean, all of that goes into our waterways. It creates dead zones. We have huge dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico where no aquatic life can live anymore. Higher rates of asthma and respiratory issues for people living around these factory farms. I've even heard terrible stories where someone falls into the manure lagoon and get sick or or die. These are very 
dangerous systems that that we have right now. And I see why they're created, but I think it's time to realize that it doesn't have to look like that. And it can be diversified and it could be integrated and we can feed cows just grass and they can be a net win for the environment. That's just not how we're doing it today. Yeah, no, 100%. Okay, so there's maybe people that we've lost by now, but a few people that are still listening that are going, but I don't want to hurt animals. I, you know, and, and there's, and this is the tough one, right? The emotional aspect of killing a creature to feed ourselves, people really struggle with. And for sure, you know, there's, there's a very valid argument around how many animals are killed for agriculture, just for, for, you know, for working the land, for harvesting corn and harvesting grain and, Never mind, you know, the pesticides and the like the the absolute nuclear disaster that the chemicals we're putting into the environment are to the animal population and us, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. but maybe do you want to talk about that? Because that is a very delicate topic. And I never want to be insensitive to it. I no. you know, we 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 don't want to be insensitive to it, and at the same time, it is something that I've had conversations with a couple of clients that have come to me very depleted from an improperly managed vegan diet and said, look, like we're going to have to figure out a way to move you into a different space here. And I know. And, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, we have a whole, um, do- a whole episode devoted to this in my rethink meat series. And we feature thing, uh, people like Lear Keith. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lear Keith. She wrote The Vegetarian Myth, and she's a lovely soul who was so devoted to, you know, a vegan diet and essentially kind of destroyed her her spine. She got an autoimmune illness, and then she was never even able to recover. And then we have stories about children. We have these critical windows of development, right, where kids need certain nutrients at certain stages. And when they don't get it, even when they do get meat back, they still can't make up for those cognitive deficits, right? So someone who's very familiar with the shortcomings nutritionally that's the perspective I come from. I also come from, I used to be a yoga teacher and there's this principle called ahimsa, right? And everyone takes that to be, you know, no harm. But I also think that if we're doing harm to ourselves in the process and we're the ones who can vote for animals to be treated well and mm-hmm. who can make a difference on the planet, then I don't know, for me, that just, for me, it doesn't, it kind of breaks down there. And, uh, but I do understand it. I, and, and what I like to say is if you've ever seen a death in nature, it's, it's, it's not a pretty one. It's in fact, my husband has a thing right now where he's watching these videos with our eight-year-old and it's, it's rather terrifying. And so you and I were talking before how in really well-raised animals with, uh, taking the humanity of animals into consideration, which often is definitely a priority these days. Um, they have one bad day and even not one bad day, just like one bad moment. And if you, you see people like Temple Grandin, do you know Temple Grandin? Okay. No, I clearly, there's an entire community of people out there. I need to get to know. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So Temple Grandin is this autistic woman. They've made a movie about her, but she felt such a connection to animals, um, that she, went and she felt like she could really understand them. And she does. And she went and created these systems so that animals are treated and comforted in a way that, you know, they don't feel the stress and fear like they Mm. used to. She's created and, you know, they have them in these shoots and they're, you're squeezed and they're just, they're just far more comfortable. So they literally have like one bad moment. And the other thing that kind of I'm reminded of probably a lot because I was close to animal agriculture growing up in Montana is that 
everything eats and is eventually eaten, right? We come mm-hmm. from the soil and, and we go back to the soil and, you know, everything in nature is, is, is circular, right? We're yeah. not at the top. It just kind of goes round and round. And so it's, it's really sad. And, and I've had to grapple with the idea myself, but at the end of the day, if I'm the one who can make decisions for a better planet and better treatment of animals, if I'm harming myself in the process, I just don't think that, um, that logic plays out for me. It's a priority for me to be healthful. And I do think animal products are a necessary part of that for reasons that we can get into, but that's where, kind of where I stand, but I'm yeah. not judgment of anyone knowing that there are health risks and wanting to make the other decision, a decision different for mine. That's, that's fair. That's your choice. And I can respect it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. So let's talk about, let's move from that into the idea that meat is unhealthy for people. And I think, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, Um, but it's a narrative that's getting pushed really heavily. And, and the minute you scratch the surface on, on these studies, the flaws just start to like pour out, right? They were looking at people that eat hot dogs and, you know, unhealthy hot dogs and preserved meat or, you know, have an unhealthy diet or, I mean, they're never really well done studies to begin with. Um, and they don't clear for confounding things like, oh, I don't know, smokers and like other unhealthy lifestyle habits. So let's speak to, you know, I'm with you. I believe we are obligate omnivores. That's my, that's my personal position. And I, and and I just think it's a lot easier to stay healthy and optimal when you give your body all of the different things. Um, and you know, and now we've got the pendulum. We, we live in this crazy polarized world, right? Where you have the vegans over here, you have the carnivores over there and everybody's sitting there kind of going back and forth going, ah, I don't know what to do. Everybody's sniping at each other. And I'm sitting in the middle going, guys, like, you know, a little of this, some of that we're good. Yeah, that's exactly my position. But the history of this is fascinating. And I just want yeah. people to know that a lot of the narrative that we hear today isn't isn't necessarily science-based. So one of the major influences that has fascinated me is, um, have you heard of Dr. Belinda or Gary Fetke? No. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, this is so fun. So Dr. Gary Fetke was an orthopedic surgeon in Tasmania, and he was performing these amputations on his diabetic patients and okay. himself exploring the benefits of a low-carb diet. So he was like, okay, well, maybe I should tell my diabetic patients they shouldn't have sugar, keep their blood sugars under control. Well, a dietitian at his hospital did not like that advice, turned him into the medical board. He suffered four years of litigation um, for that recommendation. He became the first doctor ever silenced from talking about nutrition. Absolutely fascinating. So his wife, Belinda, watching him in these proceedings was like, no, Gary, my, he's presenting this really well-researched science Uh, Until he blew in the face, but the science wasn't penetrating. And she looked under the hood, like, where are these people, these witnesses who are so hellbent on the belief that this was a uh, dangerous recommendation? And she found that a lot of it was rooted in um, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And there was a prophetess named Ellen G. White. And this was kind of the beginning of the Seventh-day Adventist. They believe that the Garden of Eden diet is one that doesn't include animal products or very little about them. And then one of her kind of students was John Harvey Kellogg. And he came into the equation because he wanted to create alternatives to meat because he believed that meat created lustful desires in children and that we could prevent 
things like masturbation by, and so he created cornflakes. So, and the Seventh-day Adventists, <laughs> I know, I know, it's very, Cornflakes, the antidote to masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it began. It's really crazy. Holy jumping. <laughs> I mean, I know, and they are still like Seventh-day Adventists, you know, you can be a great person, be a Seventh-day Adventist, but the truth is they're still very, very involved in dietary recommendations. Some of them sit on the nutritional panels, you know, they really? have to hospitals. Oh yeah. Lots of influence. There's even a paper written research uh, about their global influence in diet and nutrition today. And so a lot of these people potentially have biases, religious biases that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with science. Okay. So and the second one is William Proctor and James Gamble. Uh, we were, they had this surplus of cottonseed oil, right? And um, that was just kind of a byproduct and they didn't know what to do with it. They tried feeding it to animals that didn't work well, but they found this refining process. They could create um, something called Crisco after they learned how to hydrogenate it and make it really hard. And so they said, oh, well, this hard fat, it looks like lard. And so let's sell it to the American public. Let's create this massive marketing campaign. Let's give away cookbooks and teach them it's a cleaner, healthier um, type of fat without any scientific substantiation whatsoever. And they did. They penetrated American homes. It was a very successful campaign. And only later when we, you know, I think it was in the 90s, people started Mm -hmm. realizing trans fat, which Crisco at its, you know, the beginning of its production contained, created uh, heart attacks. You know, it was, it was, deadly, uh, hundreds yeah. of thousands of deaths. And so Crisco came in the picture. Then we had Ansel Keys. And you're speaking about- I know him. <laughs> yes, Ansel Keys. <laughs> and Procter and Gamble and Kellogg. I knew those people. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's good. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, but but he just he conducted research. <laughs> and he believed dietary fat initially was associated with, we had this escalating rate of heart disease, right? In the 1950s. And we didn't know why President Eisenhower, he had a heart attack. People, it was kind of like at America, people, everyone was paying attention to this. And he thought, okay, well, let's look at diet. And he believed it was uh, dietary fat initially. And then that research kind of did not play out. And so he really honed in on saturated fat. And he did something called the six country study. It looked like the more saturated fat you consume, the higher risk for heart disease. But other statisticians came in and analyzed 22 countries for data where the data was available and found that the association was was not that uh, and animal products actually seemed to be protective. And so subsequent research, you know, we know today that saturated fat is not the um, dietary villain that we thought it was. And there isn't a consensus there. Nina Teicholz does a lot of work with Nutrition Coalition. She's presented this science to our dietary committee board, trying to convince them and show them no saturated fat. It's, 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 that's too simple a narrative. That's, mm-hmm. there needs to be nuance in that discussion. And um, our dietary recommendations have still demonized it. We also have the sugar industry. They really like the narrative that saturated fat causes disease because it kind of takes the blame. And we had some sugar sugar industry executives kind of funding research to demonize saturated fat. And now we have the environmental narrative, right? And we have the um, humane treatment of animal narrative. We have the plant-based food narratives because you can process these plant-based ingredients, corn, wheat, and soy that we're growing in huge amounts into tons, hundreds, thousands of combinations, and you can sell them at a very high profit margin. So we have all of these influences kind of converging to give us the belief that animal products are dangerous for our health. But what we must remember, 
who've been consuming them for millions of years. And Dr. Bill Schindler, a world-renowned archaeologist, believes that eating the whole animal and meat is, is responsible for our massive brain growth. Dr. Ty Beale has done fascinating research on the fact that animal products are our most nutrient-dense foods when we consider the nutrients we are most deficient in worldwide. In middle mm -hmm. and low-income countries, they are more bioavailable. And when they're, I think, what's happening in some of the research that shows a uh, association, and that's what it is many times, we're just looking at populations and, and saying, yeah. oh, if they eat this, do they have a higher risk of disease, but not controlling for the healthy user bias or that people are also smoking, they're not exercising, right? They're eating a lot of fast food. And so that's what I think is happening is maybe in the context of the standard American diet with its multitude of unhealthy behaviors, you could say that meat is problematic, but I don't think it's the meat itself because when you look at other populations who eat a lot of meat, and they're also eating fruits and vegetables and whole foods, this association isn't there like we thought it was. And even just demonizing saturated fat, right? We know that that scientific consensus is crumbling. It's yeah. a diverse array of fatty acids. Saturated fat is not saturated fat, right? And it, what are you replacing the saturated fat with? Is it mm -hmm. grains? Or is it polyunsaturated fats? You know, polyunsaturated fats themselves are a diverse great uh, array of nutrients, you know, with different biological impacts. And so I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever to say that animal products are one of our major drivers of disease when historically we've been consuming a lot of them, right? Our rates of consumption of some animal products like beef has actually gone down recently. But what can be said, sugar, you know, carbohydrates, vegetable oils, processed foods, those are the dietary villains. But I think a lot of people make a lot of money, but not not demonizing them and trying to shift the blame onto something else. But it's it doesn't make sense that it's our primary driver of disease. It just the other thing I think that the studies don't look at. And, you know, I've, I've it's funny, I've recorded a bunch of podcasts this week and and with a number of doctors and the theme that continues to come up. And, and I think people are starting to get the message now is a lot of these a lot of diseases, a lot of conditions, a lot of, let's say, high cholesterol only really become dangerous in an environment that is inflamed. And if you were going to do a, a really good study on, you know, is meat a driver of, of illness or not, you would almost have to run labs on all these people and, and start to pick out people with chronic inflammation move them over to the side, maybe include them in a different study, but yeah. in a landscape of chronic of somebody suffering from chronic inflammation who then eats a very high saturated fat diet, and let's face it, for the most part, it's not going to be bone marrow, bone broth, and grass-fed beef fat. It's going to be all the other saturated fats that you know are not that healthy to begin with. You're going to get a very different picture of what emerges, mm. right? So- yeah the the infla the inflammation state of the individual in that study is going to be i think is actually a hugely important component that very often doesn't get looked at. Yeah. And most Americans are inflamed. And like I said, when you go outside of America and you have like, say, a European cohort and they're consuming meat, you don't see the same outcomes and increased risk of disease that you see in the American population. And Dr. Van Vliet's actually, actually before that, there was a study in 2010 
And this is another factor. Not only is the individual inflamed, but how was that meat raised? Mm -hmm. Does that matter? Because they did, they looked at eating a wild kangaroo or eating CAFO factory fed uh, Wagyu beef. And what they found is levels of inflammation in the body after the meal were lower when you consumed the wild meat that was, you know, you can assume fed grass. And so the research I'm involved in now is kind of looking at not necessarily the the after meal inflammatory response, but just other metrics of health. Like, does this matter? There's also research to suggest that when you consume grain fed beef, actually it was all, it was beef and lamb or grass fed beef and lamb. Do you have higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids, which we know are anti-inflammatory in your body? And you do, you find, even though a lot of people will argue, well, the absolute amount of omega-3s isn't that different Mm -hmm. because there isn't a lot of omega-3s to begin with. But it seems like, at least this research done in 2011, the levels in our circulation become significantly elevated when you have grass-fed animals versus grain-fed animals. So yeah, it's like, what does the person look like? How is their metabolic health? Are they inflamed? How is that beef raised, right? Is it grass-fed? Is it grain-fed? And then also, what are you eating alongside of it? 100%. Are you eating a fast food burger or are you consuming Brussels sprouts and broccoli? And I think, yeah, it's very, very complicated research, but I think at the end of the day, we'll find that at the time tested food <laughs> when raised properly yeah. in a healthy individual or someone trying to get more healthy. It's not the demon. Hey guys, we interrupt this conversation for just a minute, just to talk to you about a relatively new brand of supplements that I have become really, really passionate about. If you're interested in harnessing the hallmarks of aging, optimizing your health span and maximizing your potential, then Health Javity is a brand you've got to look at. They're committed to developing natural solutions. Healthgevity partners with leading healthcare professionals and organizations around the globe to translate breakthrough science into advanced nutritional supplements. The products feature oral peptides like BPC-157, we all know what that is, DNF-10, which is an incredible satiety peptide, and PeptiStrong, the first AI-discovered anabolic peptide through their partnership with a company called Nutrius. Some formulas that stand out are their BPC plus PEA and Ignite Plus for metabolic optimization and weight loss, plus longevity for muscle health, plus telomere prime, cardio, NAD plus, and rejuvenate for targeting many of the hallmarks of aging. So to learn more about which formulas best fit your current health goals, just go to healthgev.com and use code longevity to save 10% on any size purchase. Now let's get back to the episode. So let's talk a little bit about your dissertation because you're heavily involved in this research, which I love, right? I mean, I love to hear that, and you're doing this with a Dr. Van Wheat, I guess, like he's part of the the landscape here. And it's looking at exactly what you're talking about, right? Like, does it make a difference? What are, like, talk to us maybe a little bit about more about the parameters about this research, because there's different levels you were talking about before we started recording that I think is really fascinating. But, you know, I, again, like, I think on both sides of the equation, there's generalizations being made and there's incomplete data. And so I love that. And, and there's so much muscle and weight being thrown into one side of the equation it's refreshing to see some weight being thrown into this side of the equation to, to look for answers. I mean, you know, does it make a difference into the nutritional value? And, and you know, what you were just talking about with the omega-3, what occurs to me is 
Sometimes it's not the absolute presence of a nutrient in a food, but it's its presence in the environment that it's in that somehow augments its effect in a system that yeah. it's introduced into, right? Like it's the sum of the parts is greater than the individual components. I'm not sure if I articulated yes. that properly, but... I totally understood. Yeah. And I think that the liver is a great beef liver is a really great example of that. You know, in 1934, some uh, scientists, three scientists won the Nobel Peace uh, in Physiology and Medicine for the finding that beef liver could cure pernicious anemia. Now, if you look at it, it does contain iron, but it's not a huge amount of iron, but it's the copper and it's the vitamin A and it's the synergistic effects of all the nutrients together that make it such a, a powerful food. But yeah, luckily I'm involved in research with Dr. Van Vliet. He's at Utah State. He was formerly at Duke and he's kind of an exercise physiologist turned um, studying agriculture. He's studying the nexus of agriculture and human health. Because like you say, we have a lot of data showing that grain-fed beef versus grass-fed beef, which again, not regulated, can mean very different things. Mm -hmm. Topic for another moment. Um, but we do have higher levels of certain nutrients, omega-3 fatty acids, for example, lower levels of omega-6, sometimes lower levels of saturated fat, sometimes higher levels of protein, higher levels of conjugated little oleic acid, depending on the soil, yeah. the way it's raised higher levels of certain nutrients, B vitamins and, and minerals. And so we know that, but what this research is going to look at is does that impact human health? Mm -hmm. Like can those nutrients change physical outcomes, biological outcomes? And so the first phase of his research is the beef nutrient density project. And that's what I get to work on. So we have 200 plus farmers throughout America, the UK, um, and you know, and North America actually. So we have can Canadian farmers and ranchers as well. And they kind of represent a spectrum of production. So we have people who are doing feedlots. We have what they call feedlot light. <laughs> so so that's the thing. Light. It's like not all feedlots <laughs> are even the same. It's like what's feedlot <laughs> so light? <laughs> yeah, feedlot light is like they might be ha you know having grain supplements, but also could be out on pasture for part of the time. So it's it's not just they're never moving and and you know they're just sitting in confinement all day. Okay. And then it's we a little better you know, quality of life anyway. That's the thing. Yeah. And all feedlots are not the same, right? There are some feedlots that are far better managed than other types of feedlots. And then we have on the regenerative side. Mm -hmm. So we have animals that are rotating their cows on pasture. Then we have people who have 50 to 30 different species of plants in the pasture. They're rotating them multiple times a day, right? <clears throat> There's just like such a diversity of production practices. And what we're going to see is, does that change the nutrient profile? So I'm looking at fatty acids specifically, and I can tell you that it does. Mm -hmm. You can always tell if it's fed grain because the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio changes pretty dramatically, maybe around seven to one, omega-6 to omega-1 in, in grain-fed scenarios, all the way up, I think I've seen to 15 to one. And usually around one to two um, in a grass fed wow. scenario. And so, and but Van Vliet's research, which I think is really cool and your audience might appreciate, is also looking at phytonutrients. Mm -hmm. So these are nutrients that we don't necessarily consider essential, mm -hmm. but that reduce inflammation. They're antifungal, antimicrobial, antidepressive. I mean, they have this whole host of benefits and those nutrients change appreciably. Like there are huge differences in the amount of phytonutrients that you find in beef, depending on how that animal's raised. So the second phase of his research is looking at if you eat grain fed beef, or if you eat plant-based beef or plant-based meat, or if you eat grass fed beef, does that change what happens in your body afterwards, like in terms of inflammation? And then the last phase is just looking at if you eat a totally regenerative diet for about a month or a totally conventional diet with pesticides and 
does that change the way that um, your body reacts to in terms of um, inflammatory response and um, other metrics? I love it. So, I, I, and so how long is the, are the studies and when do you think you'll have some publishable or shareable information? You're, you're already sharing a little bit by saying like, we know we're seeing, we're already seeing this, but yeah, so I'm working on some correlations, some early correlations right now. Hope to be published in 2024. What I'm looking at right now is species diversity doesn't matter for the omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid profile. And it seems that it does. And early, there is at least a moderate correlation. That is not publishable yet. That is not even our entire data set. But yeah, in 2024, the other studies will take a little bit longer. But yeah, I think we're just finding from what I see now, you can definitely tell when an animal is fed grain in terms of its fatty acid profile. And you can definitely tell when an animal hasn't had access to diverse pastures mm -hmm. because it has less of those phytonutrients. Those are the two things that I can comfortably say um, I can see already. But yeah, he's got massive amounts of data that will come out of this. And I think it's exactly what we need to say, is it worth the extra investment? We know the environmental concerns, right? Regenerative agriculture is undoubtedly better for the environment. But, but I do think this will give credence to the idea that it's better for human health too. Yeah. So now you've got two big drivers moving that behavior into the right direction. I mean, I think that, and you know, you talked about the desertification of, of land by removing animals. And I remember when I was, um, when I was in school, when I went back to school to study nutrition, we watched a documentary about, and this wasn't even about animal husbandry. It was about, you know, plant agriculture, like growing vegetables and fruits, but it was in India. And the and I don't remember who it was, but some big company might have been Monsanto got in there and convinced the government that they needed to change the way farmers were farming from their traditional ways of farming and bring in this particular fertilizer. And so they literally overnight took away people's, I mean, they convinced people to start using these fertilizers to feed the soil to increase yield, this, that, and the other thing. And it worked really well for a period of time until it stopped. And you now had all these farmers with fields that had gone fallow because they had exhausted the nutrient supply in the, in the soil and nothing would grow anymore. And it was, and I wish I could remember his name. There was a guy from Australia that went to India and started to make the rounds, trying to convince farmers to go back and reconsider reconditioning their soil, refeeding the soil. Like they had to literally do what you were talking about before. They had to recreate the soil bed that could sustain plant life again. You know, I find that it's so, like I love the work that you guys are doing because it's so disappointing how arrogant we are, you know, and we see it in medicine but with drugs and we see it with so many different things that we think that, oh, this is easy. We can just make do this better than nature does it. And, you know, it's it's a bit like lab-grown meat or plant-grown meat that, or not plant-grown, but lab-grown meat in particular, where there's a certain arrogance that says, well, all you have to do is recreate text, taste and texture and throw in a little bit of this, that, and the other thing, and it'll be just like a burger, only better. And People are kind of flocking to it. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, which part of, you know, food is information for our DNA and our cells to a degree where we don't even fully understand it yet is being yes. missed. That's that's where we, we founded our company because 
you know, we track about 13 nutrients on nutritional labels and there's about a database of about a hundred, you know, that we pay attention to, but there are thousands of nutrients in food. And that's what these metabolomics analyses that Dr. Van Vliet's able to do is we're looking at a bigger picture. And we only started learning about vitamins in the 1900s, right? We have so much to learn about these thousands of nutrients and the way that they interact with one another. So yeah, I, I feel like us believing processed food diet that, you know, most of us are consuming today is going to be an adequate replacement is kind of the same as thinking fertilizers and pesticides are going to be able to sustain us in, in terms of our environment as well. We're just propping these systems up, our bodies and the ecology. But long-term, I think we're we're not headed for a, a good future if we continue. Yeah, we'll be so seeing I, it. I totally agree. Yeah, I think Mother Nature, she knows. And one of the ranchers I loved uh, dearly, always told me that mother nature knows if you just get out of her way, she's like a horse behind a gate. She wants to create health, wants to create vitality, wants to create a healthy ecosystem, but it's our intervention that is kind of preventing that. A hundred percent. I'm, I'm all in with you on that one. So not that I want to go too, too deep on this Well, but actually I do. So when people talk about the negatives of meat, often they're saying, well, processed beef is really bad. So cold, like for example, preserved meats, there's a narrative that says that they draw, that they are contributors to things like colon cancer and whatnot. Paleo Valley makes meat sticks, which a lot of people will look at and go, well, that's that stuff. We're not supposed to eat that. And you know, I've dug a little bit into your products and I'm like, oh my God, I love the way they do this. So, you know, the whole fermentation piece of it that yeah. that avoids having to use certain types of preservatives and stuff. So can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, I want to talk about your docu-series too, but I'd love to talk because it's a little bit, it's again, it's a bit of an elephant in the room, right? Like we we're, t- we're saying, don't eat processed foods, try to avoid packaged things, that kind of stuff. And yet you and your company have created a really like one of the best snacks I can think of. I mean, there's there's no nuts. It's easy. It's high protein, all the things. So maybe do, we, do you want to unpack that a little bit? I do. Yeah. So the inception of it was kind of I was a fitness trainer. I was traveling the world and I just reclaimed my health. And so my, my I was on a world tour and my husband came over to Paris and he brought me grass fed beef sticks and I thought they were healthy. Right. And they still gave me this really terrible digestive upset. So when I got back to America, I was like, I got to, I got to get to the bottom of why this happens. So there's first the idea of nitrates and nitrites. And a lot of people believe they're cancer causing the data is, is not uh, real solid there, mm-hmm. even though, you know, a lot of people say that it is, and um, there's a lot of considerations there, but what I kind of honed in on was the other ingredients in these beef sticks. So MSG, sugar, right? Gluten, you know, and for some people that can be very problematic. And also this ingredient called encapsulated citric acid. I found this and I was like, what is this? Like, and it was actually, it's derived from genetically modified corn, the citric acid is, and then it's encapsulated in hydrogenated oil. (laughs) And then they melt it into the stick. They melt it into the stick and that's how pretty much everyone preserves their beef stick. And you don't have to label it encapsulated citric acid. You just see citric acid on the label. And when we told them, oh, well, we don't want that in the beef stick. And they're like, oh, well, no one will really know about it. That's how everyone does it. You just label it citric acid. Everyone thinks it comes from lemons or limes. And we were like, oh, no, 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 no. I just <laughs> it's actually not going to work. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's not going to work for me. And so we, I had to call like hundreds of manufacturers to find someone willing to do it in a different way. And I finally found one. There was only one manufacturer I could talk to. And um, we wanted to ferment them. 
people have been fermenting meat for a very long time. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, um, all you do is use like a, a starter culture and it just like, and then give it some food and these bacteria convert the sugars into lactic acid. And that drops the pH just like this citric acid ingredient does. It's all about dropping the pH, right. And protecting the meat so that it um, doesn't spoil. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we found someone willing to ferment it. And so then we didn't have to add anything other than organic spices. Wow. We have a very, very clean meat stick. And that's the problem with, I think, even like demonizing processed meat, right? It's like there's some meat that has all of these crazy additives um, and, you know, and also maybe raised in a way that could potentially create inflammation in the first place. Or you have something like a meat stick that's fermented and you have organic spices and that, that that's just it. Mm -hmm. It's raised on regenerative American farms. I think that's a, that's a very, very different product. And um, I've never had any negative reactions. And they're actually, because they're fermented, very easy to digest comparatively. And uh, people, people tell me that all the time. It's a very, very different experience than eating a hot dog. Well, you're also staying away from, because salt is a preservative in and of itself. I did something on social media and one of the comments was, oh yeah, this looks great, but I'll bet you the salt is off the charts and I can't eat that much salt. And I'm like, Ooh, good point. So off I went to your website <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. oh my God, there's not even that much salt. And I think it's this ferment fermentation process. Obviously you're leaning into that for preserving the meat as opposed to cure, like to relying on salt to preserve it because the salt quantity in the meat stick is actually not that high at all. It's, I thought it was, I think it was like 250 milligrams or something. I think it's 220. 220. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's very, very respectable. And there is even, you know, doubt sometimes around sodium and salt being an issue for certain people. Right. But I understand. Yeah. Yeah, some people are very salt sensitive and it, and it does matter for certain populations. But yes, we've able to we don't have to use a ton of salt because we're using other methods like fermentation. Yeah. Awesome. Super smart, of course. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the docuseries, because, Ooh. again, like now in terms of messaging and reaching more people. So what happened was we have Paleo Valley. That's our supplement and food brand. But then we have this business called Wild Pastures and it's a meat delivery service. And when people would unsubscribe, we would always ask them why, because we want to just create the best environment and, and um, experience. And they were telling us, oh, we need to go vegan to save the planet or our health. So I thought, oh, no, like I know all of these things, but most people in the American public, they don't know. And so I think I've interviewed over 30 experts, you know, farmers, ranchers, doctors, functional medicine practitioners. I mean, you know, just a nutritionist, of course. And we have seven episodes. The first is just about the history of the belief that meat is bad. The second breaks down cholesterol and saturated fat. Is it a nutrient of concern? Should we be worried? The third is the benefits and history of meat consumption and why it's a beneficial food and why it's being demonized. The fourth is about um, veganism. Mm -hmm. Just really helping educate, sharing some stories, telling, teaching people about the nutrients that you really need to pay attention to. And then we go into myths about the environment in animals in episode five. Then episode six is about regenerative agriculture. And episode seven is all about the uh, my dissertation. Does it matter if animals are raised in different conditions? Does that change human health? And so it's been a, uh, my husband told me to do it two years ago, thinking it would take me about two months. And I just became, you know, like you said, there is an alarming amount of nuance here. 
And I just want to represent, you know, every side of the equation as accurately and as fairly as possible. And so it really is. It's it's, it's an exploration. And I've learned a ton from people who know a lot and and understand the history and like Dr. Belinda and Gary Fetke, who've lived through this and really um, peeled back the curtain on some of our uh, most pervasive beliefs and their origins. So it's really fascinating. I'm hoping it will be done again in early 2024. Okay, so it's not it's not fully released yet. No, but I'll share the first episode with you if you want me to. It's, I'm in. It's, it's yeah, yeah. People are really excited. It's it's just a fascinating story, um, and uh, I think there's a lot of benefit because again, it's ultimately up to you what you eat. But uh, I think understanding where these beliefs um, and where the research actually lies is is really important part of making an educated decision. Yeah, and I I I'm so agree with that because I do like as we talked about before the podcast. I think it's becoming a political discussion. It's becoming an emotional discussion. It's becoming a lot of things that are not taking into account the science, the health, the history, the reality of what does it mean? And it doesn't mean that you can't be vegan. I I think, you know, it is possible to be vegan. It's a lot of work, right? To yeah. be vegan and not to end up depleted in a bunch of stuff is a ton of work. And if people are ready and willing to do that work, then they might get away with it. And in, and and I also feel like, well, I've also seen that certain body types seem to do better with a vegan diet than others. And sometimes it might depend on your expectations. I'm with you though, where in developmental years, in, when the brain is developing and the nervous system is developing, I think it's awfully hard to make up for the loss of certain animal nutrients that you just... Like we just don't get them from plants in the same way. They're not as bioavailable to our bodies. They're not. And that's the whole reason I wanted to do that episode mm-hmm. is because I'm not here to teach people. What, I, I I want you to make that decision for yourself. But my uh, friend's daughter came home from school the other day and said, there's a, there's a club I can't be a part of anymore, mom, because we eat meat. And no. that's, yes. And that, and she was only nine. Oh. And that really terrifies me because like you said, critical windows of development, there have been deaths, B12 deficiency, a litany of different cognitive impacts that are sometimes irreversible. So yes, make your own decision in adulthood. I think there are probably various stages of life. You'll do better than others. I think mm-hmm. as we age, we more animal protein, just like we do when we're growing and developing. Um, But yeah, but when it comes to children, there's even a Finnish study that showed um, they had meals created by a dietitian that also involved supplementation and the vegan children were still deficient in nutrients. Um, And so, yeah, even when you try really hard, sometimes it, it doesn't pan out the way that you'd hope. So yeah, make your own decisions, but kids, kids are the reason that I really want to educate people about that. Love it. Okay. There's one last topic I'd love to touch on before we wrap up and that's organ meats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, number one, I I mean, I didn't realize that you guys had a supplement line and you have a beef organ supplement there, which I think is fantastic because it's been the thing that we've, we've, we're lacking in our diet. Like the modern diet just doesn't doesn't allow for it. And I mean, in my space where I'm talking about peptides a lot, and I talk about bioregulator peptides, which are actually tiny little epigenetic switch flippers, if you will, that are sourced from organs and tissues and glands of animals. And they're naturally occurring in our own bodies, right? So my belief is that those desiccated organ supplements contain not necessarily the as much as you might get in a supplement, 
But for a culture that eats those organ that knows to tail diet day in, day out, day in, day out, they're having this constant exposure. And now that we're in a world where, frankly, even if you wanted to eat all the bits and bobs, you'd have a tough time getting your hands on them. <laughs> yeah. Because they're, you know, they're they're just not available unless you know a farmer very well. And even then, sometimes they're not allowed to sell you certain things, like there's regulations around this stuff. So I just thought, you know, let's talk a little bit about organ meats and nutrient density of those. You talked a little bit about liver. Maybe we can also touch on this myth about liver that, oh, I don't eat liver because it's filled with toxins because the liver detoxifies. And I mean, I sit there until I'm blue in the face going, but it doesn't save toxins. So. <laughs> oh my gosh, liver. One of my favorite topics. Oh. And so <laughs> I know it's it's amazing. Okay. And I got it. There's so many things. So I started using it because uh, well, originally we just know, right. Ancestors, our ancestors prioritize it. Animals in the wild, they eat the organ meats first. And when it comes to nutrient density, liver, more vitamin A and B12 than pretty much any other source, right. Zinc, iron, highly bioavailable. The scientists found that it could cure pernicious anemia, but then Dr. Ty Beal, a researcher looked at the micronutrient status of um, what are we deficient in in middle and low income countries, zinc, iron, B12, you know, vitamin A, these are our major ones. And what are the best sources? It's heart, liver, kidney, spleen. Those are at the top of the list and no one is consuming them. And it just, it broke my heart because when I started to eat liver, it made, it gave me a whole new vitality that I had never experienced. Right. And so, and I hear this all the time from people, even in their sixties, oh my gosh, this incredible it's like a lightning bolt through my body. So that was pretty cool. And then I'm sure you're familiar with the book, Younger You by Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so, yes, and yes, she yes. talks about this DNA methylation and reversing your biological age and why organ meats are a huge part of that process because they contain so many nutrients that go on to create the methyl groups. And what she does in her protocol is nine ounces of organ meats each week which wow. I think is crazy. So that's three, three ounce servings. And again, most people, if they're even in this space, are lucky to get one serving a month. But yeah, I think <laughs> exactly one serving a month, yeah, right? Exactly. And that's why we created. Yeah. Cause I couldn't even, my husband would try to hide them. He would, you know, put liver somewhere secret and I could detect it. Really? Every even time. in Chile? I've hidden, I've hidden liver all the time. I've hidden liver pretty successfully, but you got to use a lot of spices. Like you got to, you got to work. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I think I was also pregnant at the time. Oh, you have so you're a hypersensitive. Nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for me, I was just like, oh, I really want these nutrients. And so we, we freeze dried them from regenerative farms, you know, heart, liver, and kidney and um, put them into capsules. Originally we had brain in there too, but a lot of people kind of got freaked out by that. So we took that out and we'll probably make a, a different supplement, but yeah, liver, heart, kidney, CoQ10, selenium, B12, vitamin A, iron, zinc. I mean, they are just literally our most nutrient dense foods and the liver processes toxins, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily store them. So you do want to consume organ meats from a really well-treated animal yeah. grass fed, you know, without all of the toxins, obviously, but yeah, liver isn't really a storage house for them. It's processing them and helping them be excreted from the body. And so I can't, it really makes a, a huge difference for me when I take them. And 
many people share with me that they've actually been able to get off of iron infusions mm. since they've incorporated organ meats. And of course, that is not a directive. No, no, no. <laughs> just monitor. Yeah. Do that. I'm just saying this is a story that people have shared with me uh, about the potential for organ meats. It's pretty cool. Well, it's just it would be so much more bioavailable, right? So if you're having iron infusions and you incorporate organ meats into your diet, they're presumably your iron levels are being tested on a regular basis before those iron infusions. And so it'll come out either your needs going to go down and people are going to be left scratching their heads going, gee, I wonder why. And you're going to be sitting there going, I know why, (laughs) or, or it's not going to touch it. Right. Or you, I mean, there's, there's many different reasons why somebody might be that low in iron and that, you know, there could be internal bleeding, like there could be all kinds of different reasons. So as you said, not directive, but it's something to think about and maybe consider as a, as a trial. And, and it's interesting what you say about brain, because growing up in, I grew up with brain in in my diet as part of my culture, Wow, which is, I didn't like it. I'm not going to lie. I, I would absolutely, there were a couple of different preparations my grandmother would make. And there was one with like red peppers and it just didn't, there was this, the texture and the taste of it never really jived for me. But if you think about the nutrient profile that you're garnering from that food um, and it's gotten yeah. tricky because of people being worried about what's that brain, Jacob? Bovine encephalopathy. Yeah. yeah is BSD. Yeah. yeah. Mad cow. Yeah. Disease. Mad cow disease. So it's become a lot more tricky in that world, but definitely if you go and look at, at traditional diets, they would have incorporated all of these things. Yeah. There's that ancient principle, like cures, like, right. Yeah. If you have eye problems, you eat eyeballs. If you have a liver issue, you would get a liver and what the, you know, that isn't scientifically validated necessarily, but what has been seen is they're kind of reservoirs for the nutrients that they require. Correct. Right. I've heard people say that. So well, and the bioregulators are in there. I'm telling you, I know I want to learn more. Yeah. Can you help me understand? I need you to teach me about the bioregulators. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah, Anytime. I think, I think it's, um, it's, it's this thing that's coming and it's, it's bubbling up to the surface. Now this information on bioregulator peptides and where they come from. And I I remember reaching out to, to Paul Saladino year, a couple of years ago saying, listen, I think this organ thing is a thing. And I think there's bioregulator peptides in there and blah, blah, blah. And I got like crickets. I'm like, oh, come on, (laughs) have a conversation. Oh no. Yeah, no crickets. But, um, and that's okay. You know, he's, he's on his own. I, I think it's really exciting because I think that, because what do these bioregulators do? They signal, they get into the, they cross the, the nuclear membrane they bind to DNA and drive the production of proteins and drive regeneration and can restore help to bring back function to tissues, glands, and organs that have lost it. Like it doesn't yeah. cure them, but as long as you're doing all the other things, like I've seen incredible things happen with these with these bioregulators woven through a protocol. Now tell me why are they different into from organs specifically? Why are the bioregulators working yeah. that way from an organ meat differently than any other food? Oh, um, I think it's because, I mean, they're definitely like Kev- Dr. Kevinson, who, you know, discovered and developed this whole um, area, if you will, over the last four decades. So the bioregulators are naturally occurring in our bodies. We don't make as many as we age, of course, we just make less of them. And so we lose mm-hmm. that power to regenerate. You might get some bioregulators from plants and like they're present in food. 
but it's just, I think they're present in much higher quantities in the specific tissue gland or organ. So there's a pineal gland bioregulator, there's a heart bioregulator. So, but you know, the idea would be like, if you could eat heart, which by the way, is really good meat. I mean, I like it. I, again, it's something I grew up with. More mild. Um, yeah. Pardon? More mild. It's more mild. And you know, if you, if you go find some Peruvian recipes, they marinate it in charcoal grill. It's quite good. Um, but we're not going to get into recipes, <laughs> but let's say you're eating heart, which is very rich in CoQ10, which is very important for, for our own hearts. And you're using that heart bioregulator and you're doing all the other things, lowering your inflammation, this and that, how could that not be considered as a grouping kind of like an elixir for the organ yeah. itself? Right. Yeah. So love it. Yeah. So anyway, that's just my well, send me all the research you're doing on that because that is fascinating. And and yeah, there is just, like you said, like we've been saying, there's so much about food we don't yet fully understand scientifically, but the results and the way that you feel it, uh, for definitely for me is very dramatic. A hundred percent. Oh, look, your dog's nap is over. Charlie. Charlie's nap is over, like <laughs> big, big stretch. Okay, well then I think what we're going to do with Charlie's cue, we'll follow Charlie's cue and I maybe let you go yeah. on with your day. Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been enlightening and fabulous. I've gotten to like dig into a bunch of different things that I've really always wanted to kind of dive into. I love the work that you're doing. I mean, I look, I love your brand, but I love the work that you're doing because being able to host a conversation like this with someone in your business, who's not just saying, just eat my product because yeah. I want you to eat my product because that's my business, but who's actually involved on the other side of it to dig into what is the value? What, how can we do things better? What are we doing wrong? What are we doing well? Such mm. important topics to explore. So thank you so much. And, um, Oh, it's been, so wonderful. It's just been an honor. So thank you. Well, my pleasure. And so maybe if you could tell people a little bit about where to find Paleo Valley yeah. amazing products or or where to find you and learn more about your research and how to yeah. tap into the docuseries. Yes, you can always reach out to me for anything, autumn at paleovalley.com, but also paleovalley.com is where you'll find us. You'll find us on Facebook and Instagram or wildpastures.com. And we also have a burger restaurant, which I'll take you to when you come here. It's called Wild Pastures Burger Company, and it's based on regenerative agriculture. There's no sugar in the whole place. It's nice. like, and it's, yeah, so you can get me at any of those three places. Amazing. Thank you so much. I mean, look forward to more conversations and next time we'll chat by regulators. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay. I'll put you on my podcast next and I'll see you in November, hopefully. Amazing. A hundred percent. Thank you so much. Hey guys, just a heads up that Paleo Valley has provided an incredible discount for you guys on anything that you might want to buy from their website. You just got to go to paleovalley.com forward slash Natalie, N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E, and that'll get you 15% off any size order. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. 
Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.